Parlay in All Blue is my vehicle for serving and contributing to the cause of black liberation. You can insert the term civil rights or human rights or black advancement or any of those things. Whatever works for you works for me. Also, what works for me is I need everybody to actually hear and know and understand what's going on. If you want to be an ally, great. This is a good place for you. If you want to figure out, you know, what's going on or learn some history, this is the place for you. Glad you're here. Thanks for stopping by. Now, there are numerous inputs that have led me to here, but I don't see how it would have happened without the leadership and example of our next guest, Nancy Flake Johnson. Nancy is the CEO of the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. Now that's a title or a role, but who she is is a tireless champion and advocate for black people and black life. She's an example that there is no they or them that's coming to save us. The they and them is you, me, and us. She's also an example that you don't have to do it all, nor do you have to do it alone. Nancy has partnerships with civil rights organizations, with corporations, with activists, with educators, with elected officials. Nancy is a bridge builder. She is an example of, if you want to do something, find your tribe, use your skill, and do the work. The revolution will not be televised, tweeted, or posted. You got to do the work. Nancy joins us to talk about her work and the work of the Urban League, her journey, and the unique challenges that we face in today's environment. All on this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Thanks for joining us. Nancy Flake Johnson, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm great, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this. And I have to be transparent with the listeners that Nancy and I are friends. And while Nancy is the CEO of the Urban League of Greater Atlanta, I am also a board member, a proud and active board member I am so grateful to to serve and so grateful to serve while Nancy is heading the organization. And Nancy, I just want to to say that while we're doing this, don't ask me about any action items that I may owe the board at this point. Just we're just going to talk about other things for right now, because there's a busy, busy book that's always there. How are you, though? I am great. I am motivated. I'm uh, concerned. I'm a lot of emotions right now, but in it to win it, you know, just in the fight every day and uh, grateful that there are board members like you and people like you that share this passion for making life better for the black community and for people as a whole. So we're in a very critical time. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I want I want to get to that. And and I and we are in a critical time, and it's important to hear. I want to hear you talk about that. But in order to to talk about that, I want to pull back a little bit because 
while the Urban League has a very strong brand as an institution with Black America, you and I are clearly close to the organization. I want to step back a little bit and just ask you, what is the the National Urban League? What just just what is it? What's it supposed to do? How did we get here and those things? And then we'll get into some of the other challenges. So National Urban League at its core is a civil rights organization. And what makes us unique is that our focus in delivering on that civil rights mission is to support families from an economic perspective in addition to civic engagement, social justice. So we are huge collaborators with all of the other civil rights organizations. You know, we've got to be a 360 community, right? We've got frontline folks like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. They're hardcore, you know, in the courts fighting for justice. And we need that. NAACP, uh, locally Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, Black Lives Matter, Fair Fight, all of those organizations, all of us uh, work together around voter registration, but they lead that work. So it's voter registration, voter education, voter mobilization. But National Urban League came about in the midst of the Great Migration. When many of your uh, viewers and listeners, grandparents and great-grandparents were migrating to urban centers across the nation. New York, in the beginning, was one of those key northern destinations where families were looking for a way out of the brutal South. Yep. Right? That was terrorizing families, making it practically impossible through sharecropping to earn a living. And they heard through the Industrial Revolution springing up in that same time that there were good paying jobs in the North where you could earn a livable wage and live a good life. And so Urban League came about between a group of interracial leaders in multiple organizations trying to help families who were coming find housing, find education, connect with jobs to health. All of those are the basics that make life a quality life. And so that's how we came about. That was 1910. And here we are 112 years later. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that and that story is that whole great migration is my story to a T. I mean, that I've, I've, I've lived that not knowing that I was a product of that. I mean, I just, just, it was just life. But now looking historically, clearly, I was a product of that going to Chicago, but now I'm back here in Atlanta or back south, right? My folks are from Alabama. And you are the CEO of the Urban League of Greater Atlanta at a time when Atlanta is synonymous with Black America in, in some ways. Atlanta's place in the sun of, you know, like what Harlem was at one point and Chicago and Detroit and what have you now. It, it's Atlanta's place in the sun. What is the focus of Urban League of Greater Atlanta? So you talked about, you know, nationally and being a civil rights organization. What happens? How does that translate locally? Oh, that's a great question, because 
really what's unique and impactful about the National Urban League model is that we have now 90 affiliates in cities across the nation. So we blanket the United States. We're in 36 states and the District of Columbia. And we're affiliated with the national organization. So the top level mission remains the same for all of us. You know, workforce, housing, entrepreneurship has been added, small business development, health and financial empowerment. Those, of course, civil rights. All of that is the platform. What's unique is each of our cities, each of our affiliates can tailor their work to the needs of their local community. And so as long as we meet their performance policies and frameworks, we're affiliated with the national. And that gives us one of the largest black advocacy you know, platforms and economic focus platforms in the entire country, if not the only one. Yeah. So I want to drill into to one of those. You mentioned workforce. What are some things or how does that look in, in Atlanta? Well, as it stands right now, coming off the pandemic, Atlanta is a tale of two cities. We have some folks that are definitely living very well who are Black here in Atlanta. But there's another huge group of people that are locked out. And so the pandemic took all the folks that were starting to edge up, knocked them back into poverty. And so the interesting thing about Atlanta is we're recognized for multiple years now as the worst place in the nation for economic mobility and for income inequality. So as much as we're the Mecca in many ways, Black political leadership, Black businesses, uh, we have some, some of the strongest impactful Black business communities, one of the most vibrant young entrepreneurial communities. We have the AU Center right here. We've got all these incredible assets that belong and focus on the the needs of Black folks, yet we still have this huge gap in the middle between the haves and the have-nots. And so the work of the Urban League is focused on, really focused on the the folks who are working to connect to the other side. And we we do some things for, uh, all things for a lot of people, but right now the focus is on the people who are the most impacted by COVID in a negative way. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because having been here for, I guess, 25-ish or so years and just through the lens of my children, I've been a parent at heavily segregated and impoverished schools. And then by heavily segregated, I'm talking about schools that are 95% black or brown and above 70% in poverty. And I've also been a parent in very gentrified areas. And I think it's one of the things that for people who come to Atlanta and they see, you know, Black people on Sunday and and, and ordering uh, $27 uh, mimosas for brunch. That's real. They're people that are doing well. But it is also we are a city where people are 
really struggling. And 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 so while the Urban League is is you said 1910, and we here locally are celebrating a hundred years, there's still a lot of work to be done. One of the things that I, I know that we're doing that I'd, I'd really like to, well, there are two things I'd like to to talk about. One is the Urban League of Greater Atlanta's work that's going to be happening in conjunction with the city in terms of universal basic income. What is that and what, what will the Urban League be doing there? So the Urban League has been selected by the city of Atlanta to administer its very first guaranteed income program. This actually was uh, the brainchild of our immediate past mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms. As one of her final acts, she convinced the city council to invest $2 million to determine how viable a guaranteed income program could be for our lowest income residents of the city. So this is how it works. There's an organization made up of 16 mayors across the nation that created this or or developed this, adopted this model where families receive monthly, I'll call them stipends, that they can use for anything they need for 12 consecutive months. There's no strings attached. They can use the dollars as they see fit, but they have the opportunity to plug into the Urban League and the models we offer. So $500 a month, 12 months for 300 families is the program, and it has kicked off. 25 of the families are are receiving payments, and we have just selected randomly an additional 275 families, and we're bringing them on board as we speak. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm glad that we are involved in that work, and I'm glad that that is, is taking off. And just for, you know, again, back to to those disparities, I remember when Kamala Harris was a then a, a presidential candidate as a part of her stump speech. She would talk about that there are most American families cannot survive a four hundred dollar emergency. And so there will be some people that hear five hundred dollars and not hear a lot. But for a lot of people, for the vast majority of Americans, $500 will go a long way in terms of of being able to do two things, being able to go to the doctor and to get tutoring for a child. So 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 to speak. Right. Or or many other things. I, I, don't, I don't know. But it that that goes a long way. So I'm happy to to hear that. Well, here's the thing in Atlanta in particular now, but this is happening all over the nation. But here in particular, this is not only a Mecca for Black people, but all people, businesses, corporations, investors, they like Atlanta. And over the past two years, investors have zeroed in on our housing market and have gobbled up something like 40% of the sales of Uh, both single family and multi-unit has gone to investors. And what that has done is jack the price of rent for the lowest income families. So I just got a call 30 minutes ago, a father with with a, a special needs son. The two of them have been bouncing from one extended stay motel to another. He was in a store needing money for food and he ran into one of our clients. And she gave him my number. And he said, 
Jessica said that Urban League was kind and that you could help me and my son. And so here we are with a father on the edge of homelessness, but he wants to work. He's got childcare issues. He doesn't have transportation. This is the model now for millions of Black people across this country. And so we have to lean in together with employers, with community service providers to work together to give them the platform to survive. Yeah, yeah. Because these pieces have to come together in a specific order or you've got a job, but you got no child care or you got a job. You can't get there. You don't have housing, so you're not stable. Yep. It's a it's really a perfect storm right now. No, it it is. And we did an episode early or actually it was the towards the end of last year with the CEO of the United Way in Jackson, Mississippi. And they he had just done a, a study or part of a study called Alice Asset Limited Income. It, it's basically saying that people there's a there's a formula that the United Way looked at across the country. And there are working people who cannot work, and by working, working 40 hours, that cannot keep up with the cost of living. And these so these are people who are teachers, librarians, public health workers. This is, it, it, so it's a lot of people. So when this guaranteed income, and, and, the, and the reason I want, I'm spending time here is I think as a country, we have it way backwards in terms of what the social safety net means, what it means for the state to provide. Other places, other developed countries in Europe have tackled this a long time ago, either whether they do it through Medicaid or other things. You just don't have working people who at the end of the month can't make it. So anyway, I'm, I, this is this is your episode and I'm, I'm rambling, so I, I'll stop there. No, for no. no, you've hit it right on the head. Um, it's difficult for really super difficult for families with limited where the adults have limited skills and can't work from home. You know, that was the game changer when COVID hit. It was tough before, but with pre-COVID, families could work a couple of jobs because there was child care available. Many of those centers shut down. They've reduced hours. It's just not there. And then you add the increase in housing costs. We've got millions of families that are spending 50% of their take-home pay just to keep a roof over your head. That metric is off. It should be no more than a third to survive and have something left over to have a shot at a home one day, building you know, savings accounts for those rainy days that you're talking about. And so that's our work. So what, what we've done in response is we have adopted an integrated economic mobility model that we are rolling out right now. And what it does is it deals with the core basics. And there's really three basic things in the LISC model. This is local initiative support corporations model, but Urban League, we put our sweet sauce on it, if you will. So first you got to get people stable. And one of the most egregious issues around this nation is many of our uh, state county and local governments are not deploying the federal relief dollars in an efficient and effective way to keep people from being 
evicted. That's a big part. Number two, so you got to make people stable. They got to have a roof to be able to function. Roof, food, and necessities like medical medicines and things, that's the basics you got to provide. And of course, clothing and things like that. That's a lot for a family to just be able to maintain. So, but that's what we have to do first. And Urban League has raised now over $6 million that is going directly to support people to stay put. There's no place for people to go. Number two, you next thing is increasing household income. And there's two ways to do it. You're either going to upskill people so they can make livable wage jobs. Really in Atlanta, if you're not making $30 an hour, if you're a single parent with some kids, that's $5,000 a month. If you're not bringing that in, you're going to struggle, right? And the good news and the opportunity we have is that the way the economy has evolved, there are opportunities to gain skills and plug into livable wage track jobs in two years or less. You don't have to have a four-year degree. In some cases, like truck drivers right now, you want to be a truck driver, you can get trained in six weeks and go to 27 to 32 like that. Yeah, right? yeah. Yep. Some things take longer. But what's unique about Atlanta, we're not a one industry city like my hometown was and kind of still is uh, in Detroit. That puts you at risk when if that industry sector declines and there's nothing else to hold people up. But right now we've got the film industry. We've got IT. We're the what do they call it? The um, Silicon Valley of the South. We're the Hollywood of the South. We've got construction going up everywhere. We need contractors. We need electricians, plumbers, welders. You can gain those skills in a year or less, given the opportunity to work. And you've got also FinTech is here. You've got the hospitality industry is coming back. Really, everybody's born with unique skills and talents. We can tap people into something they love and they can make a living at if we've got the resources and the time to make it happen. Yeah. Thank you for that. I I, want to go back to something because like I'm a board member and have been active and working and, you know, at, at the ready to do what I can. But I don't think that I understood what you in the Urban League did or do until, let's call it March of 2020. And I'm going to just go through a high level of 2020. Just just so about March, March is when we hear COVID and things are shutting down and there was an Urban League response. Then we had the police killings, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, here in Georgia, Ahmaud Arbery, Urban League again is involved. Then we had the shutdown or the, it didn't shut down, but the shenanigans with the post office and the shenanigans with the census, which we'll have to talk about (laughs) at some point on another episode. (laughs) We had that. And then we had the voting in the 2020 election. And the runoffs, the runoff election. And the runoffs. Yeah. So we had all of those things happening. And 
for a lot of people will hear Urban League and they'll think about some of the things that you talked about, like workforce, workforce development, housing, entrepreneurism, all of those things that are around economics. But Urban League could not sit out of any of those issues, whether it's voting, policing, health, the, the census or anything. Just step back and it just as a leader, especially here in Atlanta and in, in, in the Urban League, what does it mean to be a civil rights organization and a, and a leader of a civil rights organization during a time like that? Well, one thing I'll tell you, what we did here in Atlanta that I'm so proud of, we leaned into each other. Yes. All the civil rights groups, the faith-based community, the community organizations, the, the business community, you know, we leaned in and we stayed leaned in. And so one of the things that Urban League started in April, I believe, 2020, we started convening every single Thursday at four o'clock. Yeah. What we call the Black Leadership Coalition. Amen. Black serving, black led organizations across the spectrum coming together to simply ensure we know what the right hand and the left hand are doing so we can collaborate when we need to. And I'm so proud of it. It is still going strong two years later. And, you know, at one point we had a a meeting, I don't know, six months or so ago and said, look, do y'all really still want to meet weekly? They said, yes. Yes. You know, because everybody can't plug every week. Yep. But we have consistently 20 to 25 leaders every week. And we're now bringing in speakers around the issues we have of concern. We're, we're, of course, everybody knows we're super excited about our new mayor, Mayor Andre Dickens. And Courtney English is one of his senior advisors, was on last week. You know, we want and need all of our elected officials to be successful. So we're leaning and wrapping and all 360. Mayor Dickens has an incredible start. We're just excited that he's been able to garner support, not only from the Black community, but Buckhead has risen up to embrace him. And, you know, the business side, the state legislature has shown some grace to him. Critical. So the other piece you mentioned that Urban League is doing, we have now a full social justice civic engagement policy division, a center led by John Moy. I'm sure you'll have him on one of these. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Yep. Because we realize the decisions are being made at the elected level. That's who determines where the money goes, how much it is, what issues get prioritized. And John has just done an incredible job of forging relationships and opening doors so we can have these real conversations with the elected. And, you know, I met yesterday with a chairman of the Fulton County Commission, and he basically said, and I appreciate it so much, what's going on, Nancy? What's happening in the community right now that we need to be focused on? And you can't ask for more than that. You know, someone who knows that they're here and the people they represent are here and they need the, to bridge these connections. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to tell you and just to tell everyone in, the, in, the, in our audiences that those Thursday calls in some ways are 
probably directly responsible for this podcast. Because what I was gleaning so much from there is that there are there, you know, just the way that news is structured and, you know, that's a whole nother episode in terms of the decline of local news and other things. And just there's so many things and you really get, you know, bright headlines on, you know, top level issues. But there's so much that happens on the local level. And there's so many different organizations and people that need voice and help or what have you. So it was through those calls that really informed a lot of, of what I'm doing here. That's beautiful to hear. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that, that is direct. And the, there are three things with that. And we're going to have John Moye on in our second season, which will begin that right in like August, September, because it'll be in time to, to really gear up for people to understand now with all of the sort of what is the the remapping the 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 what is it with redistricting re, redistricting and the change in voting so I want to make sure SB two hundred two yes yes him and uh, some some political types on to to talk through you know what to do to make sure that we get people to the polls the other thing that I I want to to say is I just want people to know that. When you hear about when people will say, and and I and I have grace for anyone that says this, you know, where are the black leaders? Why are we doing this or what have you? We are doing it is it's in and, and in fact, a lot of times the people who are doing are actually doing too much. We need more people <laughs> to plug in. Listen, and, and and I want to to say, and this is this is their story. I've I've seen even people on those calls, when it's something really big, someone like Dr. Bernice King joined the call and lending her voice and lending her platform to these issues. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And I want to say, and there are others, Andrea Young from the um, ACLU. ACLU. There are people, Mark Moriel came on um, when we had from the National Urban League. NAACP president, Richard Rose. Richard Rose, yes, it is. And and the local, the local Georgia, your local elected officials, plugging in with them is super important. And, and, and for anybody listening, tell the young people to vote. It matters because you have people that will fight for you, but you got to get the right people in the place and it's got to be consistent. It's, it's, it's ongoing. Go ahead, Nancy. It is. I've got to tap into what you just said about young people voting. I just had a call moments before our broadcast from a member of the Lynx organization here in Atlanta. And she shared that they had been at West End Mall, a very uh, popular mall in town, to register young people to vote. And she said they got the shock of their life that 90% of them said they did not want to register and that they will not be voting. Okay? So here's here's a wake-up call. What we said on that call, I said, she said, we've got to do something. I said, no, let's do something. I said, because that is so sad to me. It just breaks my heart that sadly, so many of our folks have no clue the time we're in. 
out of 400 plus years on the soil. You know what hit me hard, Mark, just a few weeks ago was out of 400 plus years, we've only been able to vote for 60. Yeah. Yeah. 60. Yes. And, And the movement now is to push back on that in a huge way. We are just six decades from being back to where we were. And let me tell you, with there are still lynchings happening. Yes. There are there are laws being passed to stifle our voice and to hear a young person who clearly doesn't understand what it's what's at stake, that they're not gonna vote with pride, don't want to register, and their lives are on the line. Yes. All yes. of our lives, our freedoms. Yeah. Now, listen, and and we are going to do something. And and my my urge on every episode is for people. Listen, it it almost doesn't matter where you plug in. Just plug That's in. That's right. Because plug in at you the plug home in, at the kitchen table. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, because wherever you plug in, they need you. They are waiting for you because it is. Yes. Listen, we can say. I have some numbers on my uh, years on my whiteboard. There's 1619. Of course, we know that was 1870, just sort of what Reconstruction, 1919 yes. with black, yep. the height of black farming, height of black men returning from World War One. It's also the height of lynchings. Then we have 1968 after we gain all of these rights. So then we have the assassination of Dr. King, and a few years before that, Megar Evers. And 2020 is the same thing. What we have to understand is that part of Black progress is also uh, pushback against that progress. And we cannot lose lose heart on this. So it matters who's in these seats, folks. It does matter. It does. You know, now, don't get me wrong, because the people we're serving, I didn't finish our model. So it's stability, increasing household income by work or a small business teaching people how to manage their money and buying homes and assets. But the fourth piece is we're starting to re-educate people in civic engagement to make sure they understand these things because people say to us, though, hey, it doesn't matter. I voted in the last blah, blah. And guess what? My life is worse off today than it was before. How does voting, what does it really mean to me? And that's valid. That's real. okay? but here's what I'm telling people this time. This time, yes, all of that is critical. And we've got to lean in more on holding elected officials accountable for the needs of their constituents. But this time it's about basic freedom. Like, do you want to be able to walk down the street without folks being able to take a pot shot at you or, you know, being able to have literal freedoms? It's that deep now. And that's the difference. So we got to find language to connect with our young people and listen to them. Yeah. And and listen to even have a, a black history program at a school with this anti-CRT nonsense. But but Nancy, I, I want to ask you this, though. What was your journey to this work? How did you were you born into civil rights? <laughs> I mean, just sort of how did you how did you get here? I was not born into civil rights, no, but my parents were very active and advocates of voting and education. My my parents were active with the net, with the Urban League back in the day, NAACP always. Not not so much like leaders, 
but supporters and teaching us the critical importance of voting and all. But at the end of the day, I really got plugged into this work. As a young woman, I got the opportunity to work back at my alma mater at Howard University at the age of 28 to lead their small business development center in the business school. And that was my awakening. The My parents, my time at Howard, getting connected to my responsibility to not only be my best, but to be the best for Black folks. That's where I had the opportunity to connect with my purpose. And I understood my purpose to be to do whatever I could to make life better for Black folks. And at that young age of 28, he gave my, the dean of the business school said, this is yours. You lead it the way you see fit. And it was a blessing. And from there, you know, one thing led to another. But I ended up at the Urban League movement when I approached a milestone birthday. And I said to myself, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? I said, I want to do direct work that will advance Black folks. And I just started talking to people, saying, this is what I want to do. These are some ideas I have. I got a friend who was working for the National Urban League. He opened the door for me at the Detroit Urban League, and I became the vice president there. It was, I guess, in divine order. And from there, I came back to Atlanta, which was where I started my career. And uh, the rest is history, I suppose. And it's, it's a, been a journey of love. It's not easy work. It's a business. You're running a business. But it's, it's a joy to help people every single day. Awesome. So I will tell you this. I have to ask this question for my daughter, who is all of uh, two days a Howard alum. She just recently oh. finished. Yeah, I know, right? Well, she finished um, a while back, but, you know, with COVID and what have you, ceremonies, and we'll get to all of that soon. But what was your, what was it like to be a student at, at Howard? I, you know, it was, it, it were the most formative years of my life. I, I had always been raised in a Black community, but my schooling, elementary, I was with almost 100% Black children from K through six. But when I hit junior high, the junior high in our community was, was not up to par. And so I was one of those early voluntarily bust kids. And we got open access to uh, uh, schools in white communities. And so to be able to do all of that full circle and land on a campus where all you saw was Black excellence every day and folks really focused on, on advancing, you know, who we are and meeting young people from all over the world, all over the country, but all over the world with the same goal. It was incredible. And I hope your, your daughter had that same experience. There's nothing like an HBCU experience, in my humble opinion. But I did go to grad school at a majority school so I could, you know, really, I shouldn't say this, but kind of prove to myself yeah. that yeah. I knew Howard had prepared me to compete toe to toe with anyone. Yep. And I did that intentionally. Yeah. She had a similar experience. And, and listen, we've had people on who from Jackson State, of course, we have to have some Jackson State, of from course. Mississippi Valley State and Southern 
I, I mean, listen, the, it, the consistent, the experience is consistent. And aren't you glad that HBCUs are getting their shine right now? I am so glad. It, Me too. They really need Some it. Resources and, 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 yeah. I, I, and what I what I want to to tell people about HBCU experience is that it, it's both. I, I actually could have gone someplace else. I was raised that that I thought that going to a black college was going to college. So let me say that. Right. <laughs> and, and so I was not at all surprised in terms of, you know, quality of students or what have you. To me, I I was raised around a number of people who had attended what we call black colleges then. We didn't even call them historically black colleges. HBCUs, it's just black college. And then the other thing is, is that the historically black colleges are also uniquely equipped to take very bright people who may have had gaps in that sort of early education and feel those things and prepare them for the world. It's a, it's I a, love that. It's a unique institution. And, and when I think, when I've had the opportunity to to travel, especially in the, in the Caribbean and in South America or Brazil and other places where there was intense African bondage and slavery or what have you, the one thing that is different in the United States versus in Colombia, versus in Jamaica, versus in Brazil or or, or 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 Mexico even, is the HBCU institution as wow. a bridge to that. It is it is the one thing that is unique. It, whether where anywhere else you go in this hemisphere, it's the one thing, and and it's something that we have to have to make sure that we fight and and, and protect. Nancy, so you are from. Detroit. All right. And you were in Detroit when I would say that Detroit was a jewel of American industry and American prosperity and American just sort of the possibilities with the the auto industry. Also, Detroit was a big receiving station of Black people from the Great Migration and so you had a thriving black community and, and middle class and, and, and people doing really well in Detroit. And then, you know, we fast forward and Detroit has had, you know, its own challenges or what have you. Right now, as we talked at the beginning, Atlanta is having its place in the sun of being sort of the place where black America, that's synonymous with being black in America. Are there lessons and it's not necessarily black lessons. They could be black lessons, could be industry or what have you. Are there parallels of lessons that we can glean from Detroit is at its peak and to Atlanta? And what can we do to make sure we stay healthy? But, you know, black power for decades has really rested in our local political leadership. You know, the majority of the major cities have had black mayors yeah. and we've held on to that. I would say, you know, for Detroit, it's a renaissance city, much like Atlanta. You know, it's Atlanta, you know, was completely destroyed. They call us the renaissance city. It's come back. Detroit has been on a roller coaster and a lot of it has to do with economics. It was while I grew up in the heyday of the automotive industry where People didn't have to have college degrees to make high incomes that afforded them 
home ownership, sending kids to college and solid retirements. I mean, that was a a 40 year, 50 year window. My grandparents migrated from Opelika, Alabama and went probably the path that is now 75 North and ended up straight in Detroit where my grandfather, who was a, a horse doctor in Alabama, worked for the post office. My dad became a physician and so on. But I lived in it in that heyday. What Detroit did that I don't think Atlanta has done, which is one of the reasons we have this housing crisis, is they were very single family home driven. And so very few large, you know, public housing, high rise apartments. Uh, We had definitely some public housing, but it was you were pushed into home ownership very easily and early, which helped people build wealth. Yeah. Now, so here I would just say Atlanta is at a critical point where we have to leverage every economic dollar that the cities and our counties have to benefit the citizens of the communities that we're in and apply equitable principles around how we deploy contracts for small businesses, ensure that when companies come here, they don't just come here and get the goods, you know, the tax credits and the benefits. We work with them as partners to build workforce pipelines that train people for these livable wage opportunities. So it has to be, I think, more, and this isn't just for Atlanta, I think this is across the nation. I have seen it's with this infrastructure money. Yes. With the infrastructure money, there's going to be billions of dollars that come. And I want you to know here in Atlanta, black business supporting organizations are meeting now because we got to make sure our organizations, our people, our, our companies are ready. And if we're not, those dollars are going to go make the rich wealthier. Yep. And the rest of us are going to stay still. And that's going to be like moving backwards. So that's what I would say. You know, be, be more strategic about utilization of the resources that we have in our control. Yes. And 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 listen, absolutely. And, and if wherever, if you voted for a candidate and then that candidate delivers trillions of dollars in infrastructure money and you are in a black business, now's your time to the, the right way. And listen, we have lots of black elected officials in, in Georgia and across the country is to say, you know, how do I tap in? Where do I tap in? What do you need? Here's the skills, those minority certifications, all of those things are, are really, really important. Now, now I will say real quick, our Congress missed an opportunity because that should have been, well, they had it in the original bill, a requirement for states to measure and meet certain objectives, but it couldn't get passed with that in it. So now we're after the fact trying to do some things and it's a challenge. Hey, hey, Nancy, I will say this, that one of the things, and this is for a different episode for a different time, because, you know, we only have a limited amount of time, but we have to get back to using language that that speaks to we want, we demand a certain amount of this money be spent 
with black businesses demanding that. And by some sleight of mind and slick tongues, we got away from using the word affirmative action. I'm like, yes, we need to act affirmatively to bridge the gaps that have been. That's right. Intentionally. Intentionally built through systemic racism. I'm okay with saying that. I'm okay with, and and whether you call it as a part of a reparations package or anything else, we need to be very specific and intentional about making sure that, that we have access for the communities, those things of whether it's having a good environment and healthy environment, having proper Wi-Fi for schools and all of those things as a part of infrastructure. But listen, I know many Black businesses who can run the wire to put that Wi-Fi in the, I'm making this up, the DeKalb County schools. I know Black businesses. So if if a part of infrastructure, I'm, I'm making this up, but I'm really not making this up. No, you're not making it to, up. It's going to broadband. We have to put broadband in these schools. Yes. There are Black people who have businesses that can install the wire and make sure that that Wi-Fi is up and running. So we need to to make sure that happens. Yep. The challenge, though, is, and I'll leave with this, without legislation, we have no means of enforcement. That's right. And, and that's where the vote comes in. And that's that's super important. Nancy, I want to go back to one thing quickly as we, and there are a couple of things before we wrap up. You said to me once, and this was a while back, that when you became CEO of the Urban League, it was important for you, Urban League of Greater Atlanta, it was important for you to make connections with the activist organizations. You started off this conversation saying Urban League is a civil rights organization. We talked about the NAACP or what have you. What did you mean by that and why was that important? Well, because, first of all, the, the work is so broad and so deep, you can't do it alone. It's just impossible. You cannot be effective in an isolation. And so I, early on, I reached out to Leona Davenport at the Atlanta Business League, Helen Butler, you know, Richard Rose, so many others. And they embraced me, you know, they embraced the Urban League. And over time, I mean, we know we can count on each other. And that's critical. It's just, you know, we're better together. Let me tell you, all that's going on right now, and you know this, it's designed to divide and conquer. And so we got to lean in with the Black with the Latino community, with the Asian community and the white community that wants to coexist. Because there's a segment of the white community that doesn't want us at all. And so you, you still have to even try to reason with them because if we don't all, we, we got to coexist. And anything to the alternative to that means lives lost. And I, I'm worried about my family, my children, my grands, you know, what kind of world will this be? So I'm fighting hard for it because I want it to be a world where they can grow up and be free to be whoever and go forever. Whoever they're going to be. Yeah, no. And, and having that, that those uh, building coalition is, is very important. And respecting each other's turf too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I know who the leaders are. We, I tell Helen Butler all the time, Helen, Tell us what you want us to do, right? When it comes to anything to do with housing or workforce, she comes to us and says, I got people who need your help. We respect each other's turf, but we also work together. 
Yeah, no, that that for leaders, leaders building relationships and coalitions and 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 respecting each other's turf. I like that is is really important. I don't know if turf's the right word, but let's turf, just say lane, area. lane areas lane, of expertise. Lane is better. Areas of expertise where we have yeah. our strengths, all of those things. Yeah, I, I I got it. We got it. This is a parlay in all blue. We're family. We we know what we know what we mean. Nancy, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago or over the past, there weren't any hearings last week, but the week before for sure, and I can't remember now because it was just such a blur, but we saw the nomination and then the confirmation hearings of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. I think we'll have a vote coming up here soon, sounds like. Not about the sort of the 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 legalese of it or just sort of the policy or what have you. I just wanted to get your thoughts or insights or feelings of just what did you see as a as an accomplished black woman leader and just seeing the treatment or just what she went through during that hearing? What what were your observations of that? Heartbroken for her that she had to endure such open levels of disrespect and ignorance, ignorance in many cases. I mean, just the things that have been said, the the way I give her so much credit for her grace, holding it together, keeping her head up, you know, responding clearly, you know, holding her space. So, you know, to see what's come out this week, so many of the same old actors and players who are always negative and down, black and white, coming out, you know, proudly to say they won't vote for her. Yep. You know, it, it, it's a heartbreaker. But my prayer is that we got enough. She's got enough votes to push forward. She's exactly what I believe we need on the Supreme Court. And boy, I hope this is a, uh, another one of those civic lessons to all of us, how all these roles are so critically important. It's been a perfect storm. And why, for example, you mentioned census. So many black and brown people don't like to give that kind of information, but it set us up for this redistricting going all away from us with no recourse. Yeah, that census will have uh, ramifications in terms of of schools, of which schools will get special ed teachers, which schools will get the Wi-Fi dollars, which communities will be first up for, you know, bike lanes and walking areas so people can be healthy or what have you. And all of that was done by intent. We We can never... The one thing that I don't like that I don't like the term, there's a piece of the term woke that I don't like is is that it implies being sleep. What I would say is just if you woke, don't go back to sleep. Because again, on my board, I, I have up here 1619, 1870, 1919, 1968. The thing that we have to know is, is that the battle we're in is the battle we're in, and we can't ever, ever, ever take our eye off the prize on on any of that. So, well, thank you for helping people do that with your podcast. I well, I, I appreciate that. And as we close out, we have two questions that we ask everyone. The first one, 
It's your answer. What does it mean to live well? What it means to live well is being healthy and having the tools and education you need to earn a living that affords your family to live a safe, quality, and full life. That's what it means to me, Uh, whether that's through entrepreneurship or working for someone else, uh, having the tools you need. And that's all people need. Human beings are resilient. We know because we've been through it and we deal with those digs every single day. Even in my role, how many times sometimes I'm in meetings and the tone is just down, talking down to you and you're supposed to be partners or you're supposed to be funders and fundees and you have to, you know, you have to have constitution to keep your head up and know when to fight your battles, to move forward and to choose your words in a way that you can fight, but still keep the door open for movement. And then sometimes you just got to get down right, you know. <laughs> you gotta get rid of it. I'm yeah, from Detroit. No, you from yeah. Chicago. Yeah, no, sometimes it just gotta be said. No, I, I, gotta I be heard said. that. Yep, yes, no, I, Yep. And and we end on a, a lighter question. But these are important questions, though. These are important questions. And for you being from Detroit, Motown, Motown, listen, um, we've had people, we, we're going to have someone on from Memphis. We have New Orleans uh, or what have you. There's a lot of great American music cities. Detroit would absolutely have to be on the list. And there's so many people probably listening from Detroit, like, why wouldn't we be number one? Anyway. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Right. Why wouldn't Detroit be number it's one? Okay. But your Mount Rushmore for top favorite Detroit musicians, acts, what have you. And so I'll give you broad leeway. So you, if you wanted to say... I'm making this up. If you just wanted to say the Clark sisters, for instance, you don't have to say one of the Clark sisters. You could just say the Clark sisters oh, cool, as cool. example or, or what have you. Or you could say, you know, it's it's yours for Detroit musicians. OK, I'm going to start with the queen of soul, Aretha Franklin. Amen. It is no way. It's, it's no way that she wouldn't make any of the lists. So got That's that right. One, all right? I got to go with. The Temptations. Okay. I love The Temptations. Coming forward a bit, I love Kim. Kim is oh, yeah. That's a great one. He's, he's a renaissance, yes. you know, resilient man. Yes. Ooh, now my yes. fourth slot. Oh, my God. So, 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 so many. But, um, we, we, we. Mm-mm-mm. I know as soon as I say this, I'm going to think of somebody else, but I guess I'm going to have to give it to the Supremes and Diana Ross. You know, I okay. give them their respect. They right. they opened it up for, for black female vocalists. Oh, oh, sure. right. now there's so, a younger. What, what's the, oh, I can't think of it. Too late. I did my four. <laughs> hey, hey, listen now, now. So, so listen, Aretha Franklin Boom, got that. I get the temptations. I love Kim. Not only do I love Kim, but just sort of he he 
filled in a gap when we didn't know there was a gap. Like he came on and yes. just like, oh, that's it. And he is a great performer. And definitely Diana Ross and the Supremes love that. Now, I'm just going to tell you who's mad. Who's mad? Because that's what mad. I'm saying. I know Marvin I love Gaye is mad. Oh. Stevie Wonder is mad. Oh, Stevie. Oh, my God. Anita Baker is mad. <laughs> Anita Baker is mad. <laughs> you got it's a whole lot of people that are mad right now. I, I could go oh, through the list Lord of people. I, I have to redo mad. my list. <laughs> and yeah, so what's the anyway, younger, but, young guy? Um, oh, I can't think of him now, but there's a young guy that's so good right now. Uh, I can't Kendrick think Lamar. Myself. Is that Kendrick Lamar? I think Kendrick Lamar's Kendrick from, is from Los Angeles. But oh, yes, he he's but but yeah, he's from LA. That's he's not from LA. One. But he My kids will smack me. They're like, really? <laughs> yeah, but but listen, they it's not just your kids, but the, the Lil Sean, Sean. Uh Big Sean. Yes, Big Sean. Big Sean. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Big oh, Sean. Wait, yes. wait, Aaliyah. 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 Listen, Nancy. The, 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 you have so Look, many people. Number man. one, you know. Listen, well, on. now, now, Billy got now. some stuff for you too. Now, though, Chicago had the shy lights. I give you. Yeah, that. Chicago had the shy lights. We have Shaka Khan. We've got Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh uh, my God! Listen, Chicago is no slouch. Philly, you know, would be the OJs. But I'm going to tell you now, and because you, I'm, and I'm going to the dramatics. The absolutely. George Clinton, Parliament's from Detroit. Now listen, you Detroit, D- Detroit put, but but I'm gonna tell you when you go out in these Georgia streets, there are gonna be some people that are going to Helen may bring up Otis Redding to you. Okay. There, uh there's some people, Little Richard, James Brown here in Georgia. James so, Brown, related. So listen, listen, Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter have built this joint for free in the words of Angela Rye. And and listen, there's no American culture without black culture. So there we are. Nancy, I so appreciate your leadership here in Atlanta and your mentorship for me and just allowing me a space to to serve. I want to say that publicly and I want to thank you for your time here on the parlay in all blue and we're going to sign off. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Thank you, Mark. You're the best. I love this. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. We appreciate you here at the parlay in all blue. Please tell someone about us, share the podcast, make sure you leave a comment. You can find the parlay in all blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon or Stitcher, wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.